in chapter 10 that we saw see in chapter 9. Uh, last week we looked uh, at the uh, crucifixion and resurrection that is uh, described here in uh, verses 13 and 14 particularly. And we uh, have seen that we're kind of moving backwards in time. We've gone into the future uh, where, God, where Jesus Christ had already judged the nations, where he had already established his throne for judgment in the early portions of this. We are moving ourselves through the church age. We saw that uh, there as, as we have an opportunity to respond, uh, that we are those that will uh, seek refuge in him, that we are those that will put our trust in him because we know his name. And so we have the church age there and what prefaces the church age, what we studied last week of Christ's work on the cross and his victory over sin and death in the grave. Uh, we then are still moving backwards in time, I think. I think we're still moving closer to the period of David as he's worked his way from the end toward his time. And we come now into a very difficult passage of time and that is the period of the prophets. And the period of the prophets, we often think of, well, wouldn't that be wonderful to have these men show up and God tells them things and, and we can hear about the future, we can hear, but we forget that most of what the prophets preached was a warning. It was a warning about God's disappointment, his disgust at their activities and his plan to judge them. The judgment was the priority of all the prophetic ministries and over and over again, we see God's people not responding to them in a positive way. A remnant did, but overwhelmingly, the prophets were hated by their own people. They were often abused and even killed um, by the very ones that they are trying to deliver. And the idea that somehow if we were there, it'd be different um, is just foolish pride. Uh, the fact is, is that during the period of the prophets, and we find, uh, and really going all the way back into even the pre-kingly area, because we would go into the time of Samuel, is considered one of the first of the, of the formal prophets. Uh, certainly in the period of the judges, we have some uh, description of that, but really starts with Samuel and forward. And during this period, one of the things that we keep seeing over and over again in Scripture is that men did what was right in their own eyes, which is, a startling statement because that's the statement that, that, that was the preface to God's judgment of the earth and the flood. Uh, it was also the preface really of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. To see that attitude in his people in Israel and then later on in Judah is very disconcerting. And over and again, what we look at is we say, well, what is the primary sin of the people that really just puts God over the edge into judgment? And we might think, well, it's idolatry, that idolatry is really that sin. But we really see idolatry in Israel from the very inception of Israel. In fact, throughout the prophets, you'll hear him keep saying, they never left the sin of Jeroboam. They never, they just clung to the sin of Jeroboam. What was the sin of Jeroboam? Well, he set up a, a place in northern Israel, outside Dan, to offer sacrifices and to entice, because he didn't want his people to have to travel down to Jerusalem into the territory of Judah because they might have divided loyalties. So he wanted to put that up there. And so they basically did the same sin that uh, Israel did uh, at uh, 
the mountain, uh, having come out of Egypt uh, under uh, the golden calf, and saying, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. And so it wasn't that they invented a new God, they just wanted to worship him their way instead of God's way, and in their place instead of God's place. That's the sin of Jeroboam. But also we find that they worship the balls and things like that. You say, well, that's the real sin that God says that's enough, but we don't really find that. Um, God notes that sin, and, and we're going to see that described here, that that the consequences of doing that is the loss of God's blessing, but it didn't bring out his wrath on them. Um, but it certainly added to his wrath. And we're going to use a term that the Bible talks about a couple of times, and that is about filling up God's wrath. And, and that there is so much that he tolerates, and but it still just builds and builds and builds. And as, of, as though God has a, a beaker that once it's full um, and begins to overflow, that there is just an outpouring. He dumps it all at one time on mankind, whether it be in the flood or things like Sodom and Gomorrah or the, or the destruction of Israel and the carrying off of Judah. We, we find that there is a, a, a point where God says that's enough. And the question is, what really brings that to a, to a fullness? And again, if you go through the prophets, uh, and some of that's going to be described here for us, you see the social sins. And I'm not talking about moral sins, because that was the problem too, that they were, they were morally corrupt uh, in terms of, of uh, who they were intermarrying with and things like that. They were just didn't keep the law at all. But it really, uh, the epitome for God's people was when they walked into social sins and joined the nations. God tolerated it. Okay, you're going to go after the gods of the nations. He, he expected that to a degree when they didn't destroy all the Canaanites. You're just going to be going after them. Uh, he kind of anticipated that even with the dividing of the kingdom uh, and, and even the moral degrading of the values of his people. Um, God recognized that we are just made of dirt. You know, the Bible says that. Well, you're just made of dirt. You know, that's, I expect that a little bit. Um, but when we come into social sin, and there's really just two categories that really cap things off for him, uh, and one of them is social sin. And as you go through the prophets, one of the things you'll find them continually pointing at, and David points at here, is social sin. That how do we as a people treat the poor, the fatherless, widows, and those that we have authority over? And when we maltreat them, God is very taken aback by that. He is disturbed by that. He is angered by it. And we see that portrayed for us here in Psalm chapter 9, picking up uh, in verse 15 is where we're going to really go and then driving into Psalm 10. And we find that this is not just a few individuals, but this is really the spirit of all the people, that the nations had fallen into this and had acquiesced to it, as they had allowed this kind of activity, promoted it, and even applauded it sometimes, and said, wow, that guy's really, really uh, advanced, because look at how much he has accomplished. Well, he's, his accomplishments are based upon destroying widows' houses, his accomplishments based upon take, abusing the poor, and, and that's enriched him. And somehow we think that those are people we should look up to. 
And God says, this is the worst. And this is what the psalmist lays out here. Really the conditions that, that the prophets saw and God called them to preach against. And we see that going all the way into even John the Baptist, preaching against the social sins, the religious sins, and the moral sins. He was preaching against all of those. And we find this reiterated here. Let's read a portion of this. We're not going to quite get to the end of chapter 10 just to set it again in our minds and hearts. It says in verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be, meditation, uh, selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall, shall not perish forever. Oh, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. You see the exact same thing we just got done at nine. We really haven't gone to a new chapter, a new song. This is the exact same song. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. Uh, he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall not never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the village and the secret places. He murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face, he will never see. Arise, O Lord God. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. For you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find them. We're going to stop right there. And so this is, the, this is the request. This is the desire. And what we find during the prophetic period is that nations destroyed themselves. And God really uh, re just removes his blessing. We see a hand of blessing on a people, a nation, they rise to power, they forsake him, they denounce him, they, they commit these social sins and also these sins against the God who elevated them. The very ones that gave them power, they denied, they denounced. And then they did wickedness, not to wicked people, but they did wickedness to the helpless, to the innocent, to the poor. These that kings are meant to care for. These are the ones kings are meant to protect. This is what their purpose is in their design by God, is that they are there to protect the innocent. And David understood that. And that's why when, when Prophet Nathan comes to him to confront him about his own moral lapse, what illustration does David do? He does an illustration of a rich man um, doing injury to a poor man. And taking a poor man had one sheep, and this guy had a party. Instead of offering one of his uh, many lambs, he goes and takes the lamb from this guy who only had one and butchers it out. 
for his guests. And this incited David. Oh, this man should die for this social transgression against the poor. And so that was the purpose of government and kings. It was not to um, be bribed. When you have judges being bribed and, and officials being bribed, this is injustice and God cares about this. And this is what is listed off by David here. And this was the uh, normal condition during the prophetic period. This is what society was like. Is the rich dominated the poor. They made their lives not just uh, kept them in poverty, but, but even put them into slavery and just made it worse and worse. They extracted all of their wealth from all of these people's work and effort and their very lives. And all along the way, they're strutting around saying, oh, are you going to say God's going to judge me? You can almost imagine them being confronted by you know, men like Isaiah and, and Ezekiel. Say, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like God cares. You know, and they have this attitude that they will never be held to an account. That there is no entity on earth or in heaven that they ever have to answer to. And we have this disregard for God. And this is the condition of man in this period of time that we call the era, the period of the prophets. Um, really going from um, the period of judges of, of the rise of Samuel all the way to John the Baptist, really. And we find this period uh, invoked with God saying, okay, the nation, you as a nation are not uh, conducting yourselves. You're not acknowledging me. You're, you have this social injustice going on. I'm going to remove my blessing. As soon as that happens, you're going to fall in your own traps. That is, you're going to uh, self-destruct, essentially. The very things that you are propagating and doing will work against you and you will collapse. And when we see the rise and fall of nations, not only of God's people, not only of Judah and Israel, but of nations like Babylon and Assyria, and we see there, and even Greece, and, and you see their rise and their fall, and we say, well, you know, why didn't they just, be, why weren't they sustained? Uh, and sometimes just in very quick generations, we think of the fall of Babylon, that, you know, once Nebuchadnezzar was off the scene, uh, it didn't take very long. And God says, well, that's enough, you know, and then we have Daniel showing up and says, well, God's just communicated to you the end of your kingdom, and it happened pretty much that night. What was the end? You are going to be required to answer to God. And that answer was by the, by the collapse of that kingdom. And so God elevates them, and we can see that historically. Why did God elevate Assyria? Uh, well, they responded to Jonah and Nineveh. Why did God elevate Babylon? Well, they responded to God moving the heavens during the time of Hezekiah. And he elevated them because they acknowledged God. But then when they, God had given them victory, even over his own people, they, by that point, had forgotten the God that the, of Jonah that the Ninevites responded to. They forgot the God of, uh, of Hezekiah, and they went in there in a proud fashion, and then the collapse begins, and God moves against them. And so the psalmist here reiterates that, that this is what's going on, and yet we find societally that this is the condition of society 
when God needs to act. Now, the action that, that they wanted was for God to come in and set up his kingdom, wasn't it? So when we find Jesus interacting with his disciples, interacting with uh, not only the 12, but just the general crowd, what was their expectation? We want to make you king after the feeding of the 5,000. That's what they want. Let's make this guy king. We can throw off these Romans. We can, we can establish justice in the land. And that's what they wanted. They wanted this resolution of this social dilemma of here are all these people, the, the wealthy and the powerful, strutting about as though there's no God that they have to be accountable to. And it seems from our eyes they'd get away with all of it. They're getting away with horrific things. They're killing the innocent. We say, how do they get away with it? We throw our hands up, but God has a plan. And that plan for the disciples in that period of time was, well, you're going to, you know, you're just going to wipe out the Romans. You're going to wipe out these self-righteous individuals that are causing injury and, and social injustice in our land. Um, Jesus says, well, that's not yet. <laughs> There's a different answer first from God, and that first answer is salvation. And so in the larger picture, here's what we have God responding to the wickedness of men. The first response of God to the wickedness of men is grace and mercy. It is always his first response. That's why he sent the prophets. And that's described for us in God's word. Uh, in Isaiah, it says very clearly, and we're going to be studying that on a Sunday night here, so I don't want to take too much of that. But we're uh, not tonight, but in a few weeks to come, God says very clearly, "This is why I'm saying this. You know, perhaps they'll all repent." God's first response is to give men an opportunity to repent, and so we see that in microcosm in the prophets. Here, the nations are doing evil. It gets to a point of social injustice, and God says, "I need to react." His reaction is first of grace and mercy by sending a prophet to preach to them. When they reject that prophet, then they fall and collapse as a people, as a nation, or sometimes as an individual. But he gives them that access point. He will send his prophets to preach, for God always sends the prophets before he takes action. That's their purpose. And he gives an opportunity, a window for people to repent. And so during this period of time of the prophets, God did this over and over and over and over and over again, right? And that's what Jesus reiterates when he's saying, I saw Jerusalem, how often I have called you to repentance and been willing to gather you as chicks under my wings, but you weren't willing. How did you treat the prophets when they came? How many of them did you abuse and kill? Uh, which of them didn't you abuse and kill? Uh, ultimately, you did it all of them. And so we find that during the period of the prophets, we have a microcosm in each one of their ministries of the bigger picture, of the universal picture of God's working with man. And that is, is that as we saw all the wickedness going on in society, God says, well, before I judge you, I'm going to give you access to grace. And that is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ comes as the capital P prophet, as the capital P priest, 
and he comes as, as in that act of offering uh, a message of repentance. And boy, is God patient with that message of repentance. But it's not going to go on forever. And we know that. But God is patient, uh, just as God was patient with Israel, patient with Judah, sent them multiple prophets. And if one king did what was right, he put off the judgment until later. Uh, he was patient with them. And this is his grace and mercy. But there is an end to that patience. There is a conclusion to that. And so the first response of God to the cry of his people against the sin that they are uh, being uh, violated by is to bring grace and mercy to the very ones who are doing the sin by sending the prophets. Jesus, God's response to the wickedness of men in the period uh, of, the, of Christ's coming was to send Jesus. And he says this in the parables, maybe they'll respond to my son. Well, they saw the son, said, let's kill the son, and then we can take the inheritance. And that's what they did. And so um, we are now in that very patient period where God, the Bible calls this is the day of salvation, this patient period where we have an opportunity to repent. But as that opportunity wanes and we begin to see the evidences of the societal uh, degradation, this, this breakdown of disregarding God and, and disregarding His salvation and, and hating Him and just strutting around and doing more and more social evil, we find that His judgment is certainly on the near horizon, which we already studied at the beginning of chapter 9. So remember, we're working backwards in time. So in the period of the judges, this was the concern. Arise, O Lord, don't you see what they're doing? Well, the first thing God always does in response to the arise, O Lord, when it says, where are you at? Um, he says at the beginning of, of, verse, uh, of, chapter, of Psalm 10, verse 1, why do you stand far off, O Lord? We go back into chapter 9, 19. Arise, O Lord. We have an invitation again, <clears throat> verse 12 of chapter 10. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. And then, the invitation, please break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. We have the, the call. We're calling God to judgment. And this is what the prophets were doing with tears as they saw the, the damage that was being done. And you can just imagine, even in Christ's period, the damage that was out there and the desire people had for God to just uh, do judgment on the wicked men. But the first answer of God to that cry is opportunity. It's grace and mercy, an opportunity to choose something differently, to repent. And occasionally, men did. The Pharaoh of Joseph says, oh, I'm going to follow the God of Joseph, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to follow the God of Daniel. Occasionally, they did repent. And we have in this period of time, since the period of the prophets becomes really a microcosm of the period of this, of the, this earth, the whole earth, God's first response to our cry out to him is to give an opportunity of deliverance. Well, that opportunity of deliverance is coming to a close. God's wrath is being filled up. What are we seeing? 
we are seeing society go back to what it was, and, and we should be crying out to God and telling Him that. Because shortly after the, the, the reforms of Josiah, that was in the period of the prophets, it's also the period of the kings, under the reforms of Josiah, it was just one more generation and we had another wicked king. And it wasn't shortly thereafter that Judah's gone. They're in captivity in Babylon. Um, there was this kind of a break, a respite, if you will. Uh, and it was similar in Israel with another guy, uh, none of Jehu, which none of you would have liked him, but he was a pretty violent guy, but he had to be to deal with Ahab's family. And so we have... These men rise up, and we find uh, that though once they are done, the judgment comes pretty shortly thereafter. God gets a reprieve. But then when society drops right back into it, as soon as those men are gone, judgment comes quickly. And so this, this period of the prophets becomes a real instructional time for us to understand how God works with all of humanity. And we've already seen his period of grace and mercy. He's already sent the capital P prophet um, that everyone should have listened to, and many have, but most have not. And we're coming into a period of time now where the statements made by these wicked men, and, and, let, and let's just do an overview of them again very quickly, of what they think. Uh, verse 17, the wicked shall turn out all the nations that forget God. They've just forgotten God. It goes on, and it says that he persecutes, in chapter 10, verse 2, that persecutes the poor um, because he is wicked in his pride. Verse 3, he boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy, renounces the Lord. Um, and, and we can just keep going on. He, God is in none of his thoughts in verse 4. He doesn't seek God. It, God isn't even in his purview of anything he does. He has no conscience because he has no deity. Once you remove deity, once you remove accountability, now men do whatever they want. And if you think that men doing whatever they want without a deity over them or authority over them is going to be toward good, you don't understand the nature of man and you haven't been paid attention to the world. When men become rich and powerful, one of the first things they do is they build up these trust funds. The, and historically, in the United States, we've had that. They build up these, these uh, philanthropic uh, exercises. Standard Oil uh, people did it. Uh, Roosevelt did it. You can go through all the wealthy families historically. This isn't a new thing that's just happened in our era with Gates and all these other people. Um, that make these nonprofit organizations. And then you start evaluating, well, what did they do with, with those philanthropic exercises? What actually did they do? What we find out is they really are doing enormous injury to society through these nonprofits. So even those societies are supposed to be set up for the benefit of man end up doing acts of wickedness against man. And again, they are, they are uh, diminishing, not encouraging. They're killing, not saving. And we find that to be their theme. Oh, they have a facade of righteousness, 
that they're there to be to do good with their great wealth that they have acquired. But if you look deeply into that, if you look carefully into it, get past the facade, you find out that it is wickedness. And this is the wickedness being described here that really goes against the poor, against the innocent, and all along the way saying, no one can oppose me, not even God. God isn't in their thoughts. God isn't anywhere around. I'm not worried about God. I'm not thinking about God. I laugh at you when you mention God to me. Preacher comes to me and says, God's going to judge you. You just laugh at him. <laughs> you still believe in that superstitious stuff? You're a fool. No one can stop me in what I'm doing. And from all human appearances, that is the condition. And when we see that happening on a societal level, and, and we see it happening where we have corrupt officials, where there is no justice in the land, God says, I will intervene. He has already intervened by grace. He's already done that on the macro level. That's Jesus Christ. There is only one intervention left now, and that is the intervention of judgment, which is where chapter 9 began. That you have destroyed the nations and made them be remembered no more. And so that's the future. Once we have God send the prophet, and the prophet is rejected, and we have the, even if some responded, and there was a season, a period of patience, we find that when we go back to this, and there is this complete disregard for God, and the ethics that you should carry because you are accountable to a divine being, we then have only one kind of response left, because the response of grace has already come, the response of wrath is all that's left. And that's what we are waiting for. We have an expectation. We don't look for another act of God's grace anymore because that's already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. What is all that is left for this world is an act of God's wrath. And so this is the attitude, and it's listed extensively for us here in Psalm 10 that they simply renounce God, and they, they disregard Him, and they laugh at Him, and, and they keep doing whatever they want against weak, innocent, uh, poor, disadvantaged people. And they boast about it. All the time renouncing God. We don't need God. We have this. We have this. We have this. And, and this is the condition of society when God is ready to judge. And so this period of the prophets becomes an instructional time for us to see, well, here's the principles by which God works. When we then apply those on the bigger picture, we find that, well, there's really only one principle left, and that is once you reject his grace and mercy, Jesus Christ, there's only his wrath left. And that's what our anticipation is now. But I want you to notice the what we should be doing. We should certainly be preaching the gospel, being the prophets of the prophet. We should be the disciples of Jesus. If Jesus is the capital P prophet, then being his followers, we should be preaching the same message he preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we should also, in response to what we see of the rejection around us and this attitude being evident we should be sharing with this prophet's cry, rise up, O Lord, and destroy the nations. Rise up, see the wickedness they are doing. You and I can't stop it. We just can't. We can speak against it. 
We can purpose in our hearts not to be participating in that. We can, we can uh, strive to be a, an oasis of righteousness in a desert of evil. You know, we can strive for that, and every church should. That's what we should strive in our community of this church, is that we're going to be an oasis of righteousness in, a, in, in boy, Mexico is a desert of evil, isn't it? And so it doesn't matter how corrupt the politicians around us are. It doesn't matter to us how corrupt the educational system is around us. It doesn't matter to us how corrupt um, the businesses are around here. Uh, we should be an oasis of righteousness. But in that condition, we don't disregard the wickedness that, is sur- that surrounds us and that we encounter every day, all week. You're going to encounter it this week. You're going to be injured by it or be invited to participate in it. That's the only two options you have. You're either going to be injured by it or be enticed to participate in it. Um, And that enticement is always going to be over here to help. It's kind of interesting how our society does this. I'm going to give you an example because I have a little bit of time. Um, we were gonna. We we're gonna. We're, the the objective of the entire world's political system right now is to save the earth. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Oh, climate change. We gotta stop climate change. We gotta save the earth. When they say that, it sounds good. This is a noble cause. We're gonna reverse all these effects of of mankind. What? Do they mean by that? Well, they'd mean by that we're going to preserve nature at the cost of humanity. Because they don't view you as part of nature. Which is interesting because that's a very unevolutionistic thing to believe. That you're not natural. And so we're going to destroy people. We're going to impoverish them. We're going to kill them off. We're going to debilitate their ability to do what God commanded them to do, which is to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. No, we're going to make you subject to it. And we're going to destroy your capacities instead of enhancing them, acknowledge them, and respecting them. But it's all in this imagery of that. And this has been going on not just recently. How many of you remember Cash for Clunkers? This is my favorite example. You remember that program, Cash for Clunkers, of President Obama's period, I believe, right? And, oh, this is going to help save the planet. We're going to get rid of all those cars that are blowing out all that exhaust uh, that doesn't have the modern uh, emission control stuff. And and this is going to help clear the air. Well, let me tell you what it did. It hurt all the people who can't afford new vehicles. Because you know what they did with those clunkers that they paid cash for? Is they could not be resold, not even their parts. They were crushed in the little things and melted down, and you could not take them to the yards there on South Broadway and sell them for parts. Who buys parts for old vehicles? It's not the wealthy. Not unless they're very old vehicles, and then they might, they might be out there. Who buys used vehicles? Not the wealthy. The only injury they did was to the poor. But it sounded good, cash for clunkers. 
but it extracted all of this access that the poor people depended upon for transportation. See, this is how it works. Because they're like the psalmist describes here, is that all the day long, what are they doing? They're crouching and, and secretly finding ways. They're, they're making up fixes against the helpless. In verses 8 and following, describes what's going on around us today. We're, they sit in lurking places, in secret places, emerge the innocent. Eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. That is, they're not trying to help you. They're secretly fixed on you. Notice the word secret, 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 secret. The facade is we're here to help you. But if you get past that facade secretly, they simply want you all gone. They want to destroy you. And if you visit their websites uh, and do any kind of research at all, you will find out that's their goal. You will find it on their websites. They will say it. They just assume that no one will look. And most don't. They are lurking. They're lying in wait secretly. They're, they're like lions waiting for their prey. They're just sitting there going, oh, it's going to come nighttime and we're going to devour the innocent. We're going to just scoop it all up and take it away from them and we are going to cause them to fall. And all the time, they, they said in their heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see what we're doing. Well, God doesn't forget. God does see it, and the psalmist is going to tell us that. And that is our trust. We are trusting in the God. But I want you to notice that during the period of the prophets, they cried, God sent prophets first, and then judgment because of the cry of the people. Our God is a responsive God. So it's not only that we are trying to be a light in a dark place, we're trying to be an oasis of righteousness in a desert of wickedness, but we're also crying out to God, inviting his attention to this condition of man. And at this point, we have already know the capital P prophet has come, that really what we're crying out for is for God to come and judge them in his wrath. Because that's all that's left, folks. That's the only response of God that's left. And the, this closing of the day of salvation is quickly coming upon us when we see that the predominant attitude across the entire earth is reflected by the very words we see in these verses. We're not accountable to God. There is no God. If there's a God, he's far away. He can't see. He doesn't see anything we do. He's uninvolved. And sadly, too many Christians conduct their business and their social engagement on that same premise, really. And so this is the cry. Are we crying out to God? Lord, look at what they're doing to the poor, to the innocent, to the helpless, to the weak, to the ones that they should be guarding and protecting. They are lurking around them, catching them, and doing injury to them, killing them. This is the condition of governments, of corporations. And sadly, even of neighbors 
And it is right in our praying to cry out to God, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, and don't forget the humble. Arise, O Lord, (laughs) and stop men. Let nations know that they are just men and you are God. Don't let them prevail. We need to be crying that out for the season of grace and mercy whilst we're still advocates of that, we're still disciples of Christ, we're still called to invite people to to salvation, but in our relationship, that's our lateral relationship with men, but when we turn to God, that's where we cry out, oh Lord, look at what's going on around us, respond. You've already responded by grace, it is time maybe to respond by wrath. How much longer? How much longer? Because we can't stop that. But these men who are perpetrating this evil against not just a few, but billions of people, that's who they're perpetrating against. Billions of people are still just men. And we know the God who alone is God. And so we cry out to him, rise up, O Lord, against these practices, against these nations, against these men. Don't read the paper and go tisk tisk and worry, worry, and what should I do with my bank account? No, you get on your knees and cry out to God and say, look at this, Lord, what they are doing. I do not call you to... Um, political action. I don't call you to that because that's not going to resolve anything. MLK once said, you cannot fight hate with hate. You cannot fight it by their system because the system is fully broken. I'm not sure it really matters who you vote for at this point. Although we'd be more concerned about crying out to God, rise up and Finish these nations once and for all. Teach them that they are just men and that you are God. That should be our response. All the while we're praying that to God, we are preaching Christ to people and loving them. And you might say, that's a lot of tension. Yes, it is. It takes a lot of discipline spiritually to do that. You have to be like Jeremiah. You're weeping for the sin of your people Even while you're crying out to God, you're going to have to judge them. The psalmist is going to close chapter 10. And I don't want to not get there today. We could go on and on. God has seen it. It tells us in verse 14, we've already read that. He, He will repay it. He will do all these things. And and we're talking about complete destruction at the end of verse 15. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. This is a complete purge of the earth of that wickedness. And as many psalmists do, as many poetic Hebrew scriptures do, they really kind of go back to the beginning at the end. We've gotten ourselves all the way through from the end to the church age, to the acts of Christ, to the period of the prophets, And the period of the prophets is also the period of the kings. So he's really come all the way back to himself. And now he's going to go back 
and do a kind of a look at the whole scene in these last three verses. This is the Lord is king forever and ever. Amen? <laughs> he is king forever and ever. Doesn't matter if the people in authority with power and wealth claim he isn't. He is the king. They haven't knelt to him, but they will one day. The nations have perished out of his hand. They are no, there is no blessed nation on earth at this point. America has claimed that, and churches claim that about America for far too long. There's no evidence of that. The nations have perished out of his hand. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You pre will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. There is an end coming. And as the psalmist calls us to this, we are drawn to this, that the only one that, we, that can resolve these social sins and these moral sins and, these, and this idolatry, this religious sin, is God himself. He has already initiated it through Jesus Christ with grace and mercy. He's already done that. And it is now time for us not only to trust him for our salvation, but for the deliverance of the world, and that is to call him to this judgment. Lord, be the king. You are the king. Now exercise your kingship over the nations, and every good king knows what his job is. And David was a good king. He's a great picture of Christ. Um, I am here to defend the helpless. I'm here to defend the humble. I'm here to care for them. I'm here to do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. I am here to stop evil happening against my people. And that's why towards the end of David's life and, and his role as king, when he foolishly counted the people, and God says, now your nation's going to have to pay for your sin. And he was so upset about that. And God says, you can pick one of these three. And he says, uh, uh, we're going to do this. And then he's just crying out to God the whole time. Because he understood this was a violation of his very role. He was there to defend them. And instead, he got them into trouble. And they paid for his sin. But we have a righteous king who has no sin, who is the king forever and will do his job. He will exercise and defend those who have been oppressed, who are the innocent, who are the fatherless, who are the poor, who are the widows, who are without strength. And our trust is in Him. Not just for personal salvation, but our trust really is in Him. And it's not in any political agenda. It's not in any political party. It's not in any, any social agenda. It's not in any um, social program that's available. Um, it's not in any of that. Ultimately, the conclusion is that we must trust in the Lord as we have trusted in Him for our personal salvation. We must trust in Him for the deliverance of society. And those that foolishly would believe in an end-time scenario where the church is super successful and everyone follows Jesus haven't been paying attention very well. 
It didn't happen in the Old Testament. It isn't happening today. They have rejected Jesus Christ. They've rejected God's grace and mercy. And it is time for His wrath. His wrath is near. God is listening. Are we crying out to God or are we seeking men's devices to resolve things that we have no capacity to resolve, but God has all the capacity to resolve them? Let's find ourselves crying out to God more and more. And being an oasis of faith, in addition to being an oasis of righteousness, in a society that says God isn't part of the equation. We know he intimately is the solution to the equation. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for your great love for us. And we rejoice in the salvation we have received for your grace and mercy through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We marvel at the extent of what you have done for us and for any who would believe. And Lord, we see not just in this country, but in countries throughout your earth that they have rejected and are continuing to reject him. We pray that some might still receive you as Savior and Lord. And we will earnestly put ourselves to the task that you've given to us of, of communicating that gospel and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them as you have told us to do. But Lord, look around at their sin and consider what they have done against your creation, what they are doing against your creatures, your people, and against your church. And Lord, as we see so many innocents being slaughtered before even breathing this earth's air and being abused We see so much being perpetrated against innocent, poor, weak, helpless people. Lord, we ask you to look, to hear, knowing that the only response left for you by the principles and the patterns that you've shown us in your word is to pour out your wrath. And Lord, we pray that that might come quickly. For we are powerless against them, but you are the King of Kings. You have always been and will always be King of all the earth. And Lord, we pray that you might come quickly and that until that day that we might faithfully stand in this place at this time. be a lighthouse in a stormy sea. To your glory, honor, and praise. And it's in, name your, in your name we pray. Amen.